Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And today I'm delighted to be joined by actor, tour guide, poet, speaker, philosopher, author, Timothy Speed Levitch. Timothy, thank you so much for being with us. Great to be here, BD. So Timothy is a psychogeographer, a tour guide on both the metaphysical and physical level, offering luminous philosophical insights where you'd least expect it, connecting with the psyches of famous landmarks and celebrating the monumentally ignored monuments. For Speed, it's all about making love to the present moment, illuminating the mundane, transforming it into magic. Speed is a tour guide for the unseen, the unheard, the unloved, all that we miss along the way. Speed was also the subject of Bennett Miller's 1998 documentary, The Cruise, and has appeared in multiple films and series, including Richard Linklater's Waking Life and Up to Speed. His poetic and philosophical works have been published in numerous books. So, Timothy Speed, I'm going to use both names interchangeably. Thank (laughs) you so much for joining us. And where are you right now in the world? I am in uh, Kansas City. Have you been there for all of lockdown or have you been there for a while? I was in uh, New York. I was in Brooklyn up until last September, September 2020. Uh, and then I came out here to meet my mom. I'm at my mom's place, and I, I help my mom out here. And it's in South Kansas City. And all my life, I mean, because both my parents were originally Kansas Cityans, I've been back and forth between Kansas City and New York. And how has the lockdown been for you in terms of, you know, what have you been doing to stay sane and creative? And have you been able to do any tours during this period? Uh, I did a few when I was uh, still in New York. Uh, It was interesting. You know, what a tragic time in Brooklyn. And uh, it was interesting to do a compare contrast between going right from Brooklyn to Kansas City. The similarities, perhaps, are even louder to me than the differences. I mean, in that the masklessness, the carelessness, the cavalier attitude towards the virus. It was a comedian uh, who said something like... uh, Give me a dime for every maskless male in a heterosexual couple. Why does she put up with it? Have you ever gone up to a woman and asked her? No, no, I uh, <laughs> wouldn't. In Brooklyn, I wouldn't dare <laughs> pierce their uh, personal space. Uh, in Kansas City, it continues right now. The uh, We're in the middle of another surge, unfortunately, and um, the hospitals are filling up and... Um, you go to the grocery store, most people are still not wearing masks. No, it's crazy. And for you personally, like, have you found it to be a, a creative year despite everything? Oh, yeah, uh, totally, yeah. Um, of course, left alone on my own, I'm uh, a successful cave dweller. So this show is called Orange Juice for the Ears, and um, it's taken from a line by neurologist Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep that really goes. And the line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. So i just like to know, Tim or Timothy Speed, what does that quote mean to you? Well, it's like uh, there are these places inside of ourselves uh, where the outside world has never been. Music, music is the one bridge to those places and uh, it seems to have some kind of mystical 
connection to youth. I mean, it's amazing how a song from, from the youth, from the formative years, will plug you right back into those feelings. I was thinking about the theme of the orange juice for the ears, and I was thinking about a time when I went to Carnegie Hall, which was years ago, and uh, I went to go see a, a singer sing some Gustav Mahler songs, which I love. And um, <clears throat> I was in the third floor nosebleed seats with a friend. Every time I've heard Mahler's music from the early days, I always felt like he's really funny. You know, just the music really... It's a lot of things, of course, a lot of emotions, but really deep humor. It's like Mahler sometimes, it feels when you're listening to that music, he's giving you some sort of x-ray into the lesser-known dysfunctions of a Teutonic night. Expand on that. <laughs> <laughs> like these big kind of Beethoven moments are going to happen, but the conductor slipped a disc on the way. It's like Mahler's like this neurotic, but he's also Wagnerian. Like he's both. It's just funny. He's like on a couch doing this. It's like uh, the Valkyries are about to take off, but one of them's got um, nasal congestion. So that's kind of the comedy I always heard in Mahler. So anyway, one night I had gone to Carnegie Hall, got like $10 seats, and I was watching this great singer. And I, I will find his specific name. I'll look that up. In any case, he was great. And the way he was singing the songs it was really funny, just like the way I always kind of hear them myself. And anyway, in intermission, the place was pretty empty. So I went downstairs, and uh, someone sitting down there said, hey, just go to the first row here. Tug he literally tugged me and kind of put me in this empty seat. Anyway, for the second part of the concert, I was right in the heart of the action. And the singer, in the midst of it, literally said that he now understood, after this thing in this latest cycle of songs at Carnegie Hall, he had connected with a line, apparently, that Gustav Mahler himself had said on his deathbed. And Mahler had mentioned that of all the characteristics he thought would be forgotten about him and his music was his sense of humor. And I was like, oh my God, this singer was totally connected to that same comedy I hear in Mahler. It almost felt like Gustav had placed me in that seat so I could be front and center for the show. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Do you think his humor has been talked about a lot or even at all? Or do you think that was a, a unique insight you had? I wonder, because of course to me, it's just intuitive. Maybe I'm hearing the music of the diaspora. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel the uh, funny neurotic energy under it. But I, I don't know. I don't read a lot of uh, Mahler scholars. That could be a great name for a rock band. Yes. Mahler scholars. <laughs> I don't realize, but maybe there's some attaching to that, but I'd be interested to hear. Everyone listening is now going to call themselves that, Timothy. <laughs> <laughs> so along with music, what else is a tonic in your life? Oh, uh, well, tourism, the trade, the practice, the craft. I went to art school as a college student. I was uh, in a major called dramatic writing and a theater major. And when I first became a tour guide right out of school, my plan was to do that uh, until I got a foothold in the theater. That was the vague thought. And then over time, the tour itself became my theater, which saved me time on, on auditions. And we're going to get 
into all of that um, later on in the show because it's, it's so fascinating. And that you know documentary that I mentioned, which is obviously now um, hugely appreciated, and but yet also this kind of cult classic, The Cruise. I don't know. I can't remember the last time I was so enthralled with a documentary and with what you were celebrating and how you were celebrating it. And getting in, into more of that later on, what was the first song that imprinted on you is connected to uh, the answer about what orange juice to the ears means to me but i'm happy to announce that it was confounding and very difficult uh to answer these questions that you asked they're wonderful questions and um my inner parliament was certainly busy debating and uh, i wanted to recognize some other nominees I wouldn't be where I am today, wherever that is, <laughs> without uh, Elvis Costello's My End is True and uh, Billy Joel's The Stranger, Talking Heads, the early Queen albums. In second grade cabaret, I stood up and sang uh, some Billy Joel songs and Queen. But eventually, uh, my inner parliament voted for Lambert, Hendrix, and Ross, uh, Twisted. It's a song that I didn't even know the title, uh, Twisted, until I was looking it up for you. I always knew it as my analyst told me that I was right out of my head. And in my, the apartment where I grew up, I was probably five or six years old. There was a kind of a toy record player on the floor. It was on my level, you know, something I could get to or something I could work. It always felt great to be so autonomous to operate my own record player. There was not a lot of vinyl records down there. Uh, I listened to the Chipmunks a lot, but also, especially, Lambert, Hendrix, and Ross. Perfect. Well, now we're going to take a listen to Twisted by Lambert, Hendrix, and Ross. I had a brain, it was insane, so just let them have at me when I refused to ride on all the double-decker buses, all because there was no driver on the top. No driver on the top, this chick is twisted, what's the matter with her? My analyst told me that I was right out of my head, the way he described it. He said I'd be better dead than alive. I didn't listen to his jive, I knew all along he was all wrong, and I knew that he thought I was crazy, but I'm not, oh no. And that was Twisted by Lambert, Hendrix and Ross. And that was the song that Timothy Speed chose as the first track that imprinted on him. And you said you were about five or six at the time um, and you'd figured out how to work this portable record player that was at your level. Were you putting the record on or was it already on the deck? Tell me how you first encountered it. Oh, yeah. It was my parents' record because it was from a past generation or two. It was, I suppose, uh, from their childhood. But it was a vinyl that had shown up next to this toy record player that was on my level. And you know how it is when you're five and six. Anything that's on your level is existentially front and center. Oh, yeah. And what was <laughs> like? What was your feeling listening to the song? Like, Do you remember how you felt and you know what it kind of conjured up in you? It is amazing, isn't it? It always comes back to that Kierkegaard uh, aphorism. Life has to be lived forward, but can only be understood backwards. At the time, I remember I loved the lyrics, and I don't think I even knew what an analyst was, but I understood on a deep level that the song was uh, kind of an early introduction to the fact that individuality is a questionable feat in this society. Um, I received some sort of memo about individuality early on from uh, Lambert, Hendricks, and Ross. Well, and it is a very 
individual sounding track. I mean, it's a kind of weird track. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and listening to those lyrics, like, did you know you were a wizard age three? Well, you know, I was already feeling that ongoing feeling of being um, mocked, somebody who's mockable. I'd already been introduced to the world of mockery amongst my peers, especially, I'm sure. And so I think that probably did connect to her alienation in, in some vague training wheels way. But also like within there, because I think there's a line about riding the double-decker buses. There are quite a lot of amazing lyrics that seem almost like semi-autobiographical. Did you ever think or look back on that track and sort of reflect on the lyrics in that way? Oh, that's a great observation, Beatty. It's totally true. I thought about that a lot when I was up on the double-decker bus. No driver. No. <laughs> <laughs> Lambert, Kendricks, and Ross totally have a, part, a point about that. Good point. Yeah, I mean, they, they basically imprinted in you what to do when you were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. It was a roadmap. The song is a roadmap. It's a bus map. <laughs> so you were born in New York in 1970, um, and you grew up in Riverdale in the Bronx. What was home life like? You know, what was that family life like for you? And, and was there a lot of music in the house? Not so much. Uh, it was an intellectual house. Uh, but not so musical. However, uh, in the in the bedroom that I shared with my older brother, it was. And he was a curator of our musical collection. And he was six years older than me. Well, he still is, in fact. And uh, it was really helpful. And I was graced with a lot of great music in my formative years because of him. And what else was, you know, what else was home life like? So it was you, your parents, your older brother. Um, you know, were you close as a family unit? Oh, yeah. And my younger sister, Jess, who to this day is my tour dispatcher. She helps navigate tour reservations when we're doing walking tours in uh, in New York City. So I've collaborated with both my siblings and uh, we're close. It was so cool. We lived on Palisade Avenue, which is essentially living on a cliff side overlooking the Hudson River and overlooking Spite and Dival, which is an area that goes back to Native American history in the area and certainly through the Dutch New Amsterdam times. And Spite and Dival, this hardcore Dutch name, remains. And it's always so cool when Dutch names uh, pop up in today's New York City. It happens a lot. The influence of the 40 years of New Amsterdam and the 17th century. And that hardcore title is because that is a confluence. Those waters are where the Hudson and Harlem Rivers collide. So I grew up in an apartment building with an amazing view of that, of those waters and uh, the train station. And uh, along the cliffs overlooking the Hudson River, uh, my brother and I would once in a while romp around in these ruins. It was kind of this palatial house that was abandoned, the large driveway, a lot of stuff on it, debris. I'm not sure, but I think it was could have been part of these palatial grounds that was Boss Tweed's uh, secret hideaway palace on the cliff sides of Riverdale, overlooking the Hudson River, uh, back to the 1870s. And the Tweed Ring, and to think of them partying a few plots down from the apartment building where I grew up, uh, that's part of the romanticism, I suppose, that was planted in me early on that brought me to that curiosity of the city and its story. 
the tweed ring, by the way, one of the great, uh, profoundly corrupt political rings in New York and American history. It really is uh, the kind of history that gives catharsis to what's coming in right now in the present tense. The tweed ring in the summer of 1871 uh, was similar to this summer for us, I suppose, and that headlines just kept rolling in for New Yorkers about the latest corrupt revelation about what the tweed ring had done, estimated to have stolen $45 million from New York City. There'd be headlines about how plumbers were billing hundreds of thousands of dollars for doing services in buildings on Sundays when the buildings were closed. Woodworkers would bill for doing work on buildings made of stone and iron. There was an appropriation for chairs in the poetically known building of the Tweed Courthouse. Apparently, there was the money put aside for chairs, a five cents a chair. Uh, they had uh, invested in a line of chairs that would have been approximately 17 miles long. So when you were talking a bit about your family, you were obviously saying they were, it was more intellectual than, say, musical. You're obviously, you know, highly intelligent, astute. It's like you breathe in these insights and, and wisdom. Um, so have you always been like that? And, you know, also, have you always been sort of so empathetic and such an independent spirit from a young age? It was very confusing uh, trajectory in that uh, I grew up going to Horse Mad, which is just a high school, but it has a significance in uh, New York folklore. <laughs> uh, it's a private school in Riverdale. Originally, where I lived was only about five minute drive. And that's when we started going there. I uh, ended up commuting, taking long drives each morning to go there when I got to high school, uh, when my parents moved us out to uh, Westchester, to the suburbs. Growing up in that bubble was absolutely fascinating and shaped me to an extent that it would be difficult to even predict what I would have looked like and sounded like without growing up almost entirely in the world of, for lack of a better term, a power broker school, a lot of uh, notorious families, a lot of wealth, mostly Manhattanite, although there was all sorts of amazing figures coming in from New Jersey and Connecticut. And I say amazing because many of them were just on their own version of an accelerated path to Yale or Harvard. I was excited to get into NYU myself. So then you talked about, you know, your parents moving to Westchester County, being so kind of interconnected with the city in the way that you were and you described, um, how was it for you, you know, moving out of the city? Did that feel jarring? Yes, definitely. I used to refer to the suburbs as the tundra. It was difficult as a city dweller or as, as an aspiring city dweller to be in a land, in a landscape that is sculpted by its own primary fear. And what is that fear? A fear of walking. <laughs> Almost like the suburb is designed so that any extra step uh, can be accounted a stride towards Hades. You could say that about a lot of America, but yes. And so uh, being, being a pedestrian, being a flaneur, being a natural lover of walking the streets, hopefully aimlessly, it would be kind of weird to be uh, suddenly suburbanized. How long were you there for? Uh, a handful of very important years that led me to, I got into a few schools, but I, my eyes focused on New York University as much as because I was excited to be down in the village. 
and be in a part of the city in the action. And so what was the first album that really shaped who you are and had a major impact? Well, again, my inner parliament was uh, busily debating on this one. And we uh, finally voted on the, the specials. The original specials record will be a manifesto that lives forever. One of the reasons why I still have faith in humanity, despite it all. Perfect. Well, let's take a listen to It's Up To You by the specials from the self-titled record. What you gonna do? And that was It's Up To You by The Specials from the self-titled album. And that was Timothy's Choice as the album that really had a major impact on you. And you said the flame of your faith for humanity. Yes, yes. The theme, the vision that the special music creates helps generate this faith in humanity. The middle-aged, cynical part of myself can hardly believe is still intact. But certainly is, and, and definitely when I'm dancing and skanking uh, to the special. And so just talk me through a little bit, like how that record landed in your lap or, you know, what was that first encounter with it like? You know, how did you first hear it and what did it make you feel? Yeah, again, uh, I have to thank my older brother, the uh, curator of our early record collection. So he brought it into the house. And I remember I was immediately stirred by the record cover. And the otherworldliness of it. But I was still at the age where most of what they were talking about, I didn't fully grasp. And yet, just as you were noting, uh, if my life was a novelization, for sure, I ended up having nights at the nightclub through a lot of the songs I lived out. The last stanza of uh, the song we just listened to is forever of use. It's what you're going to do when the morons come to you. And they won't go away. They want the whole world painted gray. I find that mantra, if you will, of use daily. Yeah, you know, you've just sort of pulled that out into sharp focus. And obviously, like in its simplest message or essence, you know, it's up to you. It's obviously, again, very much that independent spirit and originality that um, you've managed to keep alive, which is incredibly difficult to do in this world. It's like that has to be stamped out of us and ironed out of us at all costs. So was that something you always felt like you had to just listen to yourself and trust yourself? Yeah, you know, it's 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 a it's a beautiful question, Beatty. And in the artist struggle, you know, between empathy and self absorption. And um empathy, I'm so glad you brought it up. It's such an amazing gesture and medicine. Uh, and it's the only way. It's the only sane way. I like to say about empathy, I'm snapping to get myself in rhythm. Empathy, in case you think I'm not taking you seriously, by the way. Oh, God, you don't need to say anything like that. <laughs> no. Oh, no, I'm doing, the, I'm doing the definition. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. 
see like, okay, for instance, if in the middle of the walking tour, I'll turn to the crowd, I'll start talking about the intersection, how the intersection is demonstrating human interconnectedness and the dance ongoing of cooperation. And then in the midst of that, I will uh, define empathy. Hopefully in the performance of it, it just kind of comes up naturally. And when I'm performing it, it's got this kind of just stands on its own, own musicality. And it, it sounds like this. Empathy, in case you think I'm not taking you seriously, by the way, I'm taking you intravenously. I love it. I love it. How many words is that? Right. (laughs) And so like in that vein, which you've kind of covered it a little bit, but I imagine that trying to fit into that, you mentioned uh, Horace Mann, trying to fit into that kind of structure and system, I imagine would have been completely uh, uncomfortable for you. Oh, well, (laughs) I was in a really uh, insulated corner of the world and an insulated corner of the city. But the joy of that was also not too healthy because I was so naive, almost like a naive Siddhartha at the gate by the time I graduated. I mean, just in the sense that most of my friends were upper middle class and hat nights and having sleepovers in really beautiful apartments throughout the city was an early wonderful education for my, uh, my tour guidehood. But I definitely took it for granted. It was my entire world. I had never known anything else. So I was introduced to the rest of the world. Uh, the economics of my family and particularly the decisions uh, having to do with the relationship between my father and me, I really got to experience my own version of poverty and really uh, not having places, not having a center, not having a headquarters. And uh, that would drag on. And I'm happy to say, I guess my artist self is happy to say, I adventured that in several different places, ended up giving tours in several different places, but never with the support that I had known growing up. So it was a crash course in being a complete inconvenience (laughs) to my friends as I tried to figure out how to be uh, autonomous. And, you know, within that, when you when you realized that you wanted to be a tour guide, you talked a little before about originally the vision was, you know, theater and um, kind of a more traditional stage. But then being a tour guide actually felt like this sort of landing, perfect landing point for you, you said, with all these other skills or or things that you loved, things that you were interested in. So how did that realization come about for you? Yeah, I uh, I was in college and somebody in passing said to me, you know, you're going to have to get a job. And that was one of the most confusing moments of my life. And confusion, after all, is the, the electricity that runs through the living. And uh, I was quite despairing. I was like, how am I ever going to be constructive to society? It just didn't seem likely. It seemed unlikely. I was, uh, after all, a dramatic writing major in art school. So I sat down and tried to figure out something that I thought I could do right out of school. And um, it was a beautiful nexus, that epiphany, that a tour guide is all about the city and history and performance. Uh, So that really drew me to it. And then the direct experience was fantastic. When I 
finally became my very first gig was uh, being a trolley tour guide for the Central Park Conservancy. And I was giving tours of Central Park and uh, they always needed infantry in the double-decker bus industry, which was brand new when I was starting out. I worked for the first major double-decker bus company in New York. Wow. And then how did that evolve? So that was around age 22, I think, when you got your guide license, right? That's true. Even I uh, got my first toy guide license before I graduated. And how did that kind of evolve? Did it evolve quite quickly for you into the rhythm and the spontaneity and everything? Because you talk about combining, obviously, history, location, theater, all these different elements. But I think a big one is is philosophy and the unseen, both getting missed with all of our busyness, but also like literally the unseen, like other dimensionalities that you celebrate in such a poetic way. Was that something you'd always been doing and comfortable with, or was that something that evolved? It's definitely true, Beanie. I showed up uh, on the double-decker bus rearing to go. I was very anxious for the mic. Pass me the mic. As the BC Boys said, I was right. And uh, I was very excited to have my own cabaret. And some of the double-decker buses today are structured a little bit differently. They're longer, and the tour guide kind of sits with everyone and has headphones, almost like you're listening to a live narration, which is cool, but it's just different. The double-deckers back in those days were all so that I was standing with the microphone really right over everyone. It just had a natural cabaret feeling, at least to me. <laughs> I had the aisle and everything. Yeah, you could turn it into whatever you wanted. Yeah, and an audience that could not escape. <laughs> <laughs> and an international audience. That was what was so fantastic. I mean, you were, especially in New York tourism, it's just downright shamanic. I mean, in that you're just meeting peoples from every habitable continent of the world, mostly on a daily basis. And also within that, you know, you were keeping your creative freedom alive um, by being a tour guide. Was that always very important to you? On the dramatic writing tip, the double-decker bus was a fantastic opportunity. Uh, and again, this is easier to say in retrospect, it was kind of like an oral, an oral dramatic writing that I was doing. Because in dramatic writing class, it's all about scene work. You're constantly thinking and talking scenes, beginning, middle, and end. Every scene, its own beginning, middle, and end. And to build scenes was definitely on my mind. That's what I had just been doing in school. Uh, for instance, part of the Greenwich Village route, they had altered it because the double-deckers had been using West 9th Street, which is a very fancy, beautiful, fancy street with all sorts of cool brownstones, old school. Well, they didn't like the Ninth Street Association had the double decker buses exiled from Ninth Street, and the double deckers were uh, sent to 14th Street. Most of the original double deckers were retired, I guess in this case, semi retired London city buses that literally had like a million miles on them already. Uh, the poor guys thought they were retired in London, were brought out of retirement, sent across the Great Pond, put to work uh, in New York. So in any case, the route was changed to 14th Street, which is a major thoroughfare, and then take a left on 7th Avenue, and the stop was at the equivalent of Bleecker Street and 7th Avenue South. In other words, the double-decker bus route was rendered to being the same route that a semi-18-wheeler truck would take through Greenwich Village. So uh, the Greenwich Village monologue that I developed at the time was my own attempt to bring Greenwich Village onto the bus, 
since we were just blazing through it as if we were just a semi on our way to Montgomery, Alabama. And just looking at the kind of unique quality of what you do, what particularly drew you to celebrate those places and people and things and monuments that were usually overlooked by your average tourist? Um, you describe it as illuminating the mundane. Um, why is the mundane your central landmark? Yeah, perhaps uh, part of the answer is art. You know, art itself, this illumination of the mundane, but also, as I mentioned, I ended up giving tours in different places other than New York, but especially New York. And I do feel that any city is a city teacher bestowing its life lessons upon us through its daily machinations uh, and its history. Deciphering those life lessons as they're coming in is all the fun. It's an illustrious discography indeed. Do you ever feel, I definitely get the feeling that down the middle of any sidewalk in any city is an invisible fork in the road. Uh, And that invisible fork in the road is an invisible fork in the road of consciousness. I've often been giving in New York something called the Midtown Rush Hour Tour. Really, it's just an attempt at finding that fork in the road, I suppose. And the difference between commuter consciousness and what I might call cruising consciousness, commuting consciousness, well, obviously, that is very much about the fanaticism of getting from point A to point B. The commute begins in this moment. I think we all can identify with it. It's a universal human understanding that the commute begins in this moment when our urge to get to our destination becomes even more alive than ourselves. I completely agree, Um, which is also obviously life, you know, and the fact that we're so goal-orientated and the magic, which is just being, is lost in all of that. Um, And the, the background experience really should be the foreground experience. You know, we need to kind of flip the two because what is background is actually or should be foreground and vice versa. Um, And I feel like the spirit of the cruise is very much that, you know, it's very much presence. It's very much being a field of awareness, you know, and and thinking about time and space with a totally different expanded view uh, and not that linearity that we're all so used to. So moving to the cruise, the documentary that was made by Bennett Miller about you. um, What was that like? Was that an odd experience to be the subject of a documentary? And I guess you'd been cruising for four years at that point? That's right. I had been on the double-decker bus. Uh, Eventually, I worked six years on the New York City double-decker bus, total of six years. And I worked a couple years on the San Francisco double-decker bus out of uh, Fisherman's Wharf. And that's the extent of my double decorate. But I've been given walking tours and such uh, throughout also. Being a documentary subject is uh, it's a unique karmic predicament, for sure. Okay, expand on that. (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate your help on this, BD. It is really confusing. You know, uh, being a documentary subject, yeah. And uh, uh, especially early on in life, uh, most of the uh, final cut of that last footage, I was 26, 27 years old. Yeah. But within that process, did you learn anything about yourself in making that documentary? Uh, Around the time that the film was playing in the Angelica uh, Film Center uh, downtown in Manhattan, I was on the sidewalk about to live out what would seem to be 
kind of a dream come true when uh, a lady on a random street corner in Midtown turns to me and says, aren't you that guy in that documentary? She hadn't retained my name, but she just knew that I was in the documentary that she probably had seen at the Angelica because all the other films would sell out. And so if you'd gone to see a movie, you were frustrated, but usually there'd be tickets available for the cruise. (laughs) So she probably saw it that way. In any case, uh, it was a great New York moment, very uh, edifying, when um, this austere, beautiful, elegant lady randomly turns to me. How often, even in your New York life, does somebody just turn to you on a street corner and address you at all, let alone identifying you in any way? It was really exciting. She says uh, very lucidly, not impassioned, just really almost with a scientific understanding. She looked at me and she said, you're a parasite. You suck. You take uh, from a society. You don't. You don't give anything back. And I said to her, "Look, we all have a place in the food chain. I suppose it was awkward to be portrayed as an ambassador of uselessness in the in the middle of such usefulness. Although obviously there is a percentage of the film where I'm at work." Yeah, I think you can just throw that one away. I mean, <laughs> seriously. Um, I think in that film, it's, it's the being. It's all about the being. And very few people are really just being. And that's not a simple thing. And that's not a useless thing. It's really what we've lost touch with. And so I think it's the most wonderful exploration and meditation on just the power of presence and being in the moment. You know, so yeah, someone like that probably doesn't see it as being particularly useful because, you know, considering things just for their their usefulness is is really not the way to go about life. Um, Wow, I I knew you would help me. I felt great. Thank you, Beatty. And yeah, it's like it's a joy to hang with the like-minded. Exactly. (laughs) You know, exactly. So yeah, I would not see that as something that you have to take home with you at the end of the day um and just speaking about home because the whole time you were shooting that you were sort of cycling around different friends couches right you didn't have a home per se well i mean it was it was tragic yet hilarious but it was the decline and fall of my own finances i think it was uh also me just growing out of that world where i was just luxuriously couch surfing for a while after school as I had so many cool friends around who were on board for the couch surf. And uh, I always thought of myself as contributing, you know, to the atmosphere. Uh, as RuPaul said, uh, you always want to bring something to the birthday party. It's just that over time, as that went on, really just standing on, on fragile ground because I had been taken care of generally by my grandpa, not entirely, but again, I was generally living in an upper middle class world and my friends were the progeny of power brokers, for lack of a better term. A term, after all, is what happens when language and laziness have a few beers, a few laughs. And, you know, I mentioned uh, that there was something happy about this reality for my artist, with my artisthood. I'm sure there's a lot of artists out there who can identify that there was a crisis that was going on, even though I was not noticing it at the time, that I was no longer being financed the way I was because my grandfather was suddenly 
not in charge. And my father was, and he had a very different attitude about uh, whatever money pool I had been a part of. The aftermath of the film, he was not pleased. I don't think that helped uh, in any case in his inner parliament debate <laughs> about what to do. I just was uh, really uh, dropped right out of my world. Uh, and then my mom had the, there had been the house in Westchester, but then she moved back to Kansas City. Uh, my mom, eternally a Kansas City girl, and she returned. And uh, I'm here there today. And it's always been a, another wonderful borough of New York City, as far as I can tell. So I've been back and forth enough that I remember when I was five, six, in those times, I always assumed Kansas City was just another borough of New York. So in any case, being uh, quite suddenly poor, I was also then a tour guide. I was known as a tour guide, which is exciting. Uh, however, not lucrative, not lucrative. And um, even when I began working on the film, the cruise, it was at a time when I was making $7 an hour before taxes. And my family had just spent a great deal of money on my dramatic writing education at NYU. So I was a living theatricality trying to find my much needed niche in the world. Was that relationship with your father ever repaired? You know, uh, when it was, it would happen thanks to Lambert Hendrickson Roth or uh, Dave Brubeck, because we could both groove to that music together. Well, music is one of those ultimate connectors. But I, you know, I think what you've shared and, um, and also what you said earlier about that woman that I'm now going to be thinking about for a long time. Um, <laughs> you know, if you can activate one ounce of awareness in one person or make them see something that they didn't see or make them think about something in a different way or appreciate the beauty of something. You know, you do that for one person and that's a, a, a huge contribution. And, you know, you did that for so, and you're doing that for so many people in a way that stays with them, you know, because in this world at the moment, nothing's really imprinting, you know, everything's floating around in this sphere, you know, kind of hitting us at the same frequency. But nothing is going that deep because we've lost a lot in the transition from physical to digital. So doing even a tiny amount of that is rare and magnificent, but you're doing that so much of the time and for so many people and for so many beautiful parts of the world or beautiful things that are hidden in plain sight. So yeah, I really think your contribution is, um, is not to be questioned. I'm a little speechless. I thank you. I totally grew to that beat, you know, and the awareness, appreciation of beauty. Uh, it, it takes me back to that invisible fork in the road we were talking about that's running down any sidewalk of any city. Obviously, uh, all those gear shifts have an important place in life. I have shared so many of my own really ugly uh, rush hours in the wake of a 10-hour shift and understand full well commuter consciousness and its significance in our lives. To commute is deep down, I suppose, <laughs> the uh, quiet assumption that uh, every single godforsaken human being currently on this planet is in my way. Uh, and the other side of the fork in the road, more uh, of an improvisational pedestrianism, that opens one up to the participation of others and can at times take the time 
to prioritize the appreciation of beauty, which uh, is a natural antidepressant. Definitely. I always felt like the immediate appreciation of the beauty in your immediacy, it just can uh, really give you that 30,000 foot view of depression, which uh, is something like when you have that 30,000 foot view, depression looks more like you know, for those of us who never get a chance to go to outer space, that's the one black hole we ever get a chance to explore. Yes, and we're going to get to space in just a minute. So that's a, a nice sort of taster. Woo! We're on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> With a lot of your work and your thoughts and your philosophical musings, do they occur spontaneously? How much is spontaneity a part of it? Oh, yeah. The walking tours especially are an amalgamation of successful improvisations over the years. So they are scripts. They are scripted, carefully choreographed. Each stretch of sidewalk has oration dialogue that goes along with it. But the script itself is mostly assembled by improvs over the years and years of experimenting in front of the walking tour crowds. So uh, very much a script that's also bebop jazz. So it's something that came up spontaneously, which you then worked into a kind of rhythm. You know, and just recently, I have been collaborating just tangentially with a couple of wonderful projects that are going on in New York right now. Uh, one called Current, which is a sound walking voyage through lower Manhattan. And another one called Bizarre Brooklyn. Uh, my friends who are magicians and do a magical uh, walking tour to Brooklyn at night. And these are actual, especially Bizarre Brooklyn is an actual show, is a theatricality. And I'm really excited to be part of that because in a way I feel it's a, an evolution of the walking tours I've been giving, which was always uh, my own version of off-Broadway theater. And those are, those are going to be open soon? Yeah, Bizarre Brooklyn is open now. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so you talked about the essence of cruising as being really appreciating the beautiful in the biggest and smallest things. What else would you say is essential to the cruise? Well, um, over time, I've realized it's a contest. Uh, this thing we're calling civilization feels like some sort of a contest between uh, what I might call the redefiners of joy and uh the blower shitter uppers. And even now, it seems like the blower shitter uppers have uh, an ability to box in the conversation. The blower shitter uppers are often utilizing gaslighting. And the fact that that's becoming illuminated as a subversive form that the blower shitter uppers uh, seem to be utilizing is, uh, is for sure uh, probably another example, subtle but important example of the human race getting smarter. Do you think we're getting smarter? <laughs> Difficult to say. Uh, the fog of war, after all. It's foggy. Fog comes with war. But uh, the war of the consciousnesses brings me to this feeling that the more we can understand gaslighting and put it in its proper place is a deep liberation, not only for humanity, but for, but for its present tense. Gaslighters are the very enemy of our present tense. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and true statement. So thinking about, you know, if you're zooming way, way out and looking at the world, what is that music that you would send into space to communicate? We're here, we exist, maybe we're getting smarter, but maybe not. 
yeah, maybe my favorite off ramp to anywhere. Uh, and I love your use of it. That's a great word for it. It's a big maybe. And it's uh, Dinosaur Jr.'s uh, You're Living All Over Me, which uh, is one of those albums that I started listening to as a teenager and I still listen to. So my grooveliciousness with it has changed over time. But I think I've always felt, and only now I've started to articulate to myself, that I feel like Dinosaur Jr. is You're Living All Over Me, which again is also very funny. It's a beautiful comedic work. But there's also, um, it's like it's the oration of mass extinction. And the record was made in a glorious time called the 80s, which was a time, at least in my experience of it, before we were talking about mass extinction. At least if that conversation was going on, I was out to lunch. I didn't know about it. And the idea that we're all part of the, I believe, the sixth mass extinction in the planet's history, I was just thinking, like, this could be a cool record to send into space because the Earth will remember us or we would be remembered eventually as a time, a short time, a short, explosive, exciting time in the Earth's history. We were an exciting species that learned how to take advantage of the naturally secreted liquids in the planetary body, but we were short-lived, and that'll be our chapter. And somehow dinosaur genes are <laughs> living all over me is a serenade of our human 15 minutes, 15 minutes of fame in Earth's history. I absolutely love that. So would you send the whole album? Is there a particular track? Because we're going to play one track now. So if we can send the whole record, but what what would be the song you'd like to play now? Okay. All right. Um, how about In a Jar? Okay, fantastic. So now we're going to take a listen to In a Jar by Dinosaur Jr. from the album You're Living All Over Me. In a jar, the scars are And that was In a Jar by Dinosaur Jr. And that was from the record, You're Living All Over Me. And that was the song, but really the record um, that Timothy Speed would like to send into space. Because as he said, we're kind of reaching the the sixth mass extinction (laughs) cheery note. And um, this album kind of speaks to that and speaks to our very short-lived appearance on this beautiful planet that, you know, will go on without us quite happily. And in that same um, vein, I guess, why do you think human beings are so good at disconnecting themselves from the interconnection of everything? You know, we could just look out at nature and we've got all the answers in nature of how everything is interconnected, of how everything thrives when it's interconnected, of how that's kind of the basic law of the universe. But we, th- we sort of remove ourselves from that. Why do you think that is? Do you think that we're uh, cushioning ourselves from the chaos a bit? Yeah, I my perspective is that the narcissistic tendencies of the ego have just gone 
out of control. And we think we're, <laughs> we, we really think we're pretty smart as, as we mentioned, you know, and so the idea of getting technology from nature, no, we, we can make our own. And I, I, I don't know, I think it's the narcissism and the ego and just how, how that's kind of run rampant. And sure, I'm sure there's a sense of the void, you know, people's fear of confronting that void. But yeah, I think we've just become very um, in love with with ourselves, which, you know, you talk about being in love with the present moment. Well, being in love with the present moment is actually almost allowing a absorption of yourself into everything else. It's really not about you and your identity and personality and ego. It's you aligned with everything that is life. You know, it's you an extension of that life. But I don't think we, I think we see ourselves as, as very separate from life. Yes. To bring it back to the intersection for a moment, any operable intersection in any city is some sort of dramatic exhibition of that very human interconnectedness. I mean, it is a drastic form of egalitarianism to levy out waiting, the amount of time of waiting that people share just so that everybody can get going. Yeah, in the sense of... Oh, it's torture to wait. Well, and the time span, you know, you look at a tree... And a tree is on a whole other time span, as are so many species to us. You know, we're on such a short term time span. It's this moment and it's, you know, instant gratification now. You know, it's like everything that we as human beings used to have for a long view. You know, you'd build a temple or a structure that you maybe wouldn't realize or it wouldn't be realized in your lifetime, but you'd be one part of the build of that. Um, knowing that in 50 years or 100 years or 200 years, it would be realized. You know, I think human beings used to be able to think on much longer time spans, but now I think the short-termism is such a massive factor um, of what's disconnected us. And technology, you know, technology has done a fabulous job of fast-tracking everything it means to be human beings, but without reflecting the true cost or, or, or value in the process of that. You know, it makes me think of the Empire State Building. The Empire State Building has this iconic quality, that of Il Duomo in Florence. It has the magnitude of a Cologne Cathedral for Cologne. You know what I mean? It stance in the New York City skyline is that of a central cathedral that is not only a mascot, but is kind of exhibiting the tone, the grandeur of the town. And it is interesting to consider that New York's central cathedral, in that sense, the Empire State Building, unlike the Duomo or the Cologne Cathedral, was not sacrifices of generations and all the masonry and meticulousness and bold thinking that went into building a central cathedral over centuries in a place like Cologne or Florence. It's more a central cathedral that was built in 13 months. Its infrastructure was anyway. There's a famous 10-day period, apparently. They built 14 floors of the frame in one day. And the architect noted that a lot of the design of the building was uh, taking the economics into consideration uh, so that the structure could be built as simply and as quickly as possible. Anything that's beautiful about it, in a way, is coincidence. One of my favorite F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, short stories or essays, I guess, is called The Lost City. In any case, it's about when the observation deck of the Empire State Building was brand new. 
Uh, it was his first experience of going up on top of the Empire State Building and seeing the view disillusioned and crushed because uh, he explains that up until he saw the view from the top of the Empire State Building, he had assumed the city was limitless and never ended. Wow, I love that. I really love that. So that perspective, which was obviously absolutely unique. I know you can't have degrees of unique, but it was both the furthest anyone had seen, but then also you could see the limitations. Yes, yes. And he mentions the dark patches of the distant suburbs. Is there any particular monument or building or structure that feels like it's very much a kind of part of you? Is there, you know, a favorite of yours? Well, of course, I'm fickle. But uh, lately, definitely the uh, Flatiron Building. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what a beauty. I think part of what stirs me about the Flatiron Building is that it's awkward, and yet it's kind of proving right before our eyes that uh, awkwardness can be precise and beautiful. Is that one you talk about a lot? You know, awkwardness has always been a theme. When things are awkward, something's happening. And uh, I think the Flatiron Building would be the first one to tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's also why we are where we are, because actually being uncomfortable, being in difficult situations or being confronted with the awkwardness of life, it's really oftentimes the precursor to a breakthrough or to something shifting or, you know, something expanding. Um, But we're so uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. um, And, you know, I think that... That's actually where a lot of the magic is. In the discomfort, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so moving to the part of the show where we have to imagine a world without you, Timothy, which would be a much less uh, magical place, what is the song that you'd have play at your memorial? I think Fishbones Party at Ground Zero. Okay, so let's take a listen to Fishbones Party at Ground Zero. Party at Ground Zero, baby, move and start with you. And the world will turn to stone in paper two. Party at Ground Zero, baby, move and start with you. And the world will turn to stone in paper two. Party at Ground Zero, And that was Party at Ground Zero by Fishbone, and that was the track that Timothy chose as the song he'd have play at his memorial. Um, Why that particular track? Well, I've always loved that song, and the original live performances, the Fishbone concerts, were very influential, (laughs) raising the roof on the possibilities of performance and performance energy. A Fishbone concert, uh, when I was a teenager, simply raised the stakes of reality. The other thing is, and I guess maybe this is becoming a theme of our conversation, uh, BD, I ended up living out more of these lyrics. A party at Ground Zero, a B-movie starring you. And as time went by, I actually ended up starring in a B-movie starring me. 
with your funeral kind of uh, front of mind at the moment, how do you feel about death? Is death something you've contemplated a lot? And um, what are your thoughts on it? Um, I really uh, tend toward less of a reckoning. There's this great short story by, uh, well, it's at the beginning of a John O'Hara book. There's this merchant who has an assistant uh, and he sends the assistant down to the marketplace to buy some goods that their store needs. And the assistant very soon later comes running back all flustered and says to his boss, I'm sorry, I've got to go. I've got to get to Samara. Get out of here. And the merchant says, what happens? And the assistant explains that in the marketplace, he bumped into death and he's terrified. So that's why he wants to get out of town, head to Samara. So the merchant goes down to the marketplace. He comes up to me and he says, hey, what the hell are you doing? Good help is hard to find. You show up here in the middle of the marketplace, you terrify my assistant. He's, he's ridden off now. And I said, listen, I wasn't trying to scare him. I just was surprised to see him. I have an appointment in Samara with him tonight. I feel a lot like that assistant. Do you feel that, you know, we exist in another form? Oh, yeah, I do. I personally do. I think some days it's obvious. It brings me back to a comment from Maimonides. It was something like he says about how, uh, how eternity works when you stare into a candle for a minute and then you close your eyes, you can still see and feel the flame in your mind's eye. And that's eternity. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. I feel that entirely. Yeah. yeah. I think that's obvious to me in the middle of a Tuesday, quite often. Just on the Tuesday. Well, no. <laughs> in the middle of an average day, it seems pretty clear. And that definitely makes me feel more curious a curiosity that levitates beyond that low slung ceiling. Yeah, the ceiling is very low. I think the ceiling isn't just low. I think we're staring at the world through chinks <laughs> in a cavern. You know, it's like we have this whole thing over our head with just these narrow slits and that's how we see a lot of reality. Um, I, I really think that our sensory perceptions have just got so shut down to all the stuff that is actually around us. And when we start to expand our sensory inputs, we can pick up on more of that stuff, you know, that is there. Um, we're just not used to receiving it. Absolutely. And wouldn't you say uh, an inadvertent telepathy being shared between those who are making an intersection operable? Although, uh, inadvertent and largely ignored. <laughs> and the world, you know, you've said that the world is an exam to see if we can rise to into the direct experiences and that life understood is life lived. What do you think the opposite of life is? I think it is the nullification of our reality as it's unfolding. The, the nullification of our present tense, which... Uh, is gaslighting and its forms. The uh, pollution of the common stream of our thinking, I think that's a Yogananda quote, actually. Sometimes it feels like um, what gaslighting is, it's a five-year-old self's response to an unfolding reality not going your way. In a way, cynicism trains us, I think, to pull in and out of an afternoon the way you do a stock, whether it's going your way or not. It's just a natural way. 
And uh, the cynicism helps us become kind of stock market dealers and specialists of the afternoon, pulling in and out of participation. And I totally grew to that beat. Um, and so we're now moving to your last Orange Juice for the Year choice, Timothy. Um, what would the album be that you'd pass on to the next generation? The uh, inner parliament within me definitely was ensconced in an enormous debate and eventually came up with Blondie's Plastic Letters. As I mentioned, my brother was six years older than me, so he was in high school and I was still in elementary school. So he had extracurricular activities after school. So he had instructed me one day uh, to go to the local record store that's on the way home from school and buy an album to add to our collection he being the curator, the quarterback of our collection. He sent me in there to get Blondie's uh, parallel line. And I was young enough, probably eight, that I could not retain the words parallel lines. But I decided to memorize the initials. I decided I would go to the record store, find the Blondie section, and just find the record that had the first word that started with a P and the second word of the title would start with an L. And I would grab that one. So instead of getting parallel lines, I came home with plastic letters. And uh, my brother and I still laugh about it because, of course, in that instantaneous instant, he was disappointed that I had chosen the wrong record. But uh, over time, it's one of our favorites. It's such a full expression of the band. Endless ingenuity and creativity. Uh, the band is like an expression and a feeling for me. and Plastic Letters is the blondiest of the blondie expressions. And all due respect to Parallel Lines, which for sure had a hell of a lot of hit singles on it. I still feel that Plastic Letters is blondier. And so what was that feeling? Blondie is a feeling and an expression for you. What is that feeling? It must be an amalgamation of the fact that when I first was listening to Plastic Letters, I was way too young to understand a lot of the actual subject matter. So it was this fantastical voyage into what I knew was sensuality, although I would have certainly not had the word for it, uh, but also into the comedy as well as the sensual, the emotions uh, that go into every beginning, middle, and ending of the record. My brother and I ended up going, his birthday is July 7th, mine is July 9th, and July 8th, we would once in a while do a family trip. And in 1979, I was turning nine. We chose to go to Belmont Raceway. One, it's fun to watch the horse racing, but it was the summer stage at Belmont. And back there, we went specifically to go see Blondie live. So uh, I'm sure a part of this is that that was my first concert experience, walking into a live uh, summer stage concert with Blondie. Uh, it definitely uh, turned my world upside down, changed my views. And uh, my initial introduction to uh, different perspectives uh, and different ways of looking at the world somehow. I, uh, in a lot of Debbie Harry's wry sense of humor and observations about the world. So in just a minute, we're going to take a listen to No Imagination from Plastic Letters by Blondie um, to close out this fascinating episode of Orange Juice for the Years. But first, Timothy, I want to ask, what is the thread that connects all of your Orange Juice for the Year choices? 
I think that a uh, theme that we have bumped into during this conversation, I wouldn't have guessed, but I realized there's a lot of lyrics I was listening to earlier in my life. I ended up living out. And I wonder if that's true for a lot of people. It really does back up the feeling that reality is uh, an unfolding epic novel. And uh, we're all hopefully exciting page turners. Well, and that life and art are also interconnected. Yeah, and you know, I, I love the orange juice for the ears, Beatty, and uh, this really does just luxuriate in that gigantic conversation that I might call art. And doesn't it feel sometimes like uh, art is this gigantic chat being chatted between artists across centuries and decades? And this is such a fun conversation in that gigantic uh, conversation between artists. Well, thank you. I feel that very much. I think the best art is layered. You know, it has so many layers to it. History, you know, culture, context, innovation, you know, feeling, emotion, words. Obviously, there are all these things going on. And when we speak to the art of the past, which, you know, we do, which also isn't really of the past, you know, it's tapping into something timeless that I think is, again, kind of where where magic lives. And the best art points to something we cannot express with words. That's how I feel. And so, yeah, it's lovely to kind of get into that space with you um so thinking about humanity and the spirit of the cruise today what do you think we've gained along the way and what do you think we've lost and uh, gee when there is nascent fascism on the rise something that would have been difficult for someone of my generation to predict I was 19 when uh, the Cold War officially, unofficially came to an end. And Russia and the United States were getting along for a while. And um, I remember well the world uh, when the Cold War was real on a daily basis, just like that movie The Day After, which was a TV movie that was very popular and controversial at the time because it was a portrayal of what would happen to Lawrence, Kansas, basically, <laughs> in the wake of a nuclear war. And a lot of the controversy I remember oh, was that it was a very real thing, you know. It was certainly on the menu of possibilities, these two superpowers uh, who just kept amassing armaments because that was the race, that was the nature of deterrence. And in any moment, due to an accidental flick of the switch, it felt like uh, the whole world could be evaporated around you. And of course, that's still a very real possibility, but somehow easier to put in the back of your mind. It's become more the tragedy of random violence, of someone showing up with a homemade bomb in Times Square. In any case, uh, it's, it's difficult for me, as someone who uh, has watched the last half a century standing here, to overlook the formation of an American fascist party. It's a historical pivot the ramifications of which are, right now, they feel like flakes. Flakes form in a storm. And it's happening. Sadly, it's happening all over the world. You know, it is, it is happening everywhere. Truly, truly. It's, you know, listening to this music today with you, it's just a, another beautiful little reminder in the middle of a day that the human race is the most creative species the planet has ever witnessed. And uh, it's a joy. It's wonderful to celebrate the creativity with you, uh, BD. But uh, yeah, the destructiveness is real. 
And uh, as you mentioned, there's a worldwide disposition forming. I suppose it's always been there, just actualizing. Yeah. But as you said, you know, creativity and destruction, those polar opposites, we will continue to celebrate the creative side um, as much as one acknowledges the other, because that's what keeps one alive, right? It's really true. And it's, it's great to be on this big blue ball with you, doing just the head. So very last question, what is it that you hope to leave behind with all the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? That's such a great question. It's like trying to do a retrospective uh, of yourself. There's a great uh, Gore Vidal aphorism that came to mind when you first asked me uh, when he says, you know what you said when you hear what they heard. And I think my first answer, out of respect for the complexity of any single human being, (laughs) is uh, I'll be fascinated to hear what they heard. Timothy, that's so beautiful and the perfect way to end this episode of Orange Juice for the Years. And now we're going to take a listen to Blondie's No Imagination from the album Plastic Letters, um, which was a awakening of sensuality amongst many other things for Timothy. So thank you so much once again. Thank you, VD. Great to share. I bet, tell me, baby, you don't need no invitation. Let me smoke another cigarette before I'm 